So we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 17, through the end of chapter 5. And I'm going to start by reading the hardest part, the bit that's most difficult for us to swallow. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, three you want to be. I want to start us off by reading uh, chapter 5, the first five verses. 1 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 1. Follow with me. I'll read this, then we'll pray, and we'll get into it. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And if present, I have already announced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And Father, we're asking that you would help us to not dull the edge of the sword of your word, but that, Lord, we would have the ability to understand what Paul was saying to the Corinthians, how this fits into the whole gospel of grace, and that, Lord, we would be people who don't just understand a truth or a principle better, but we would be people who long to know you better and long to love one another better. Lord, this is really what your goal is for us. And so we pray that you would meet us here and that you would teach us by your Holy Spirit. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And everyone who agrees says, Amen. Amen. I was a very angry 14-year-old. And I found myself getting excluded from school four times for fighting. And my dad, single dad of four boys, and the youngest of four boys, was at his wit's end. The school was making very sober, giving me very sober warnings about what would happen. And so I determined not to get caught again for fighting. And so the next time I got in a fight, I didn't get caught by the school. And I, my, I made my way home. It was, it was May in Southern California. It was starting to get quite hot. But I had a jacket on because I was covering up the blood stain on my shirt. And when I came to my dad's workplaces, which I did every day after school, my dad saw, he was reading this newspaper, and he saw that I had a jacket on. He says, why is your jacket on? And I sheepishly unzipped it and took it off. And he looks at the blood and he says, what happened? And I says, I got, I got in a fight. And he sighed kind of disappointedly, and he went back to his newspaper, and he says, did you win? <laughs> and I said, yes. He kept looking at his newspaper, and he said, don't do it again. And at that moment, I knew my dad doesn't really care that much about me. I don't say that to dishonor my dad. He was actually a pretty great dad. 
I say that is I, I made a connection in my 14-year-old brain. I made a connection between the reality that if I'm loved, I need to be disciplined. I need to be corrected. I knew my life was out of control. I knew my anger was out of control. I needed my dad to correct me, and he just didn't have, for whatever reason, the energy to do it. And this idea, this truth about correction being a part of love is all throughout the scripture. That God makes it clear that whom he loves, he chastens. In fact, let me just read this to you from Proverbs chapter 3. I'm reading from the New Living Translation here. It says, My child, do not reject the Lord's discipline and don't be upset when he corrects you. For the Lord corrects those he loves just as a father corrects a child in whom he delights. Our God is committed. He so loves us. He's committed to see us changed. He wants to make us like Jesus so that in becoming like Jesus, we get to enjoy Jesus. We get to enjoy the Father, the Spirit forever. And he wants us to grow into this in a community. And part of being in a community amongst God's people, part of the the issue is us, listen, is us learning how to love each other well enough, how to know each other well enough to move towards the kind of relationships where we can both give and receive correction. So when we pick this up in verse 5, we look at the verses we just read and we think, oi, this sounds pretty heavy. But we have to see what's going on in the context that we're looking at today, but also in the whole biblical context. In the context of a gospel, a good news about a Savior who loves us enough to forgive us, to give us his righteousness, and to put us into his family, and to transform us from the inside out. So we're going to look at three ways that church discipline, or correction within the body, works in what we call a culture of discipleship. What does it look like when we are a group of Jesus followers who want to help each other follow Jesus? Part of it is correction. So let's look at the first thing. In, in chapter 4, verses 17 to 21, we're going to see that discipline or correction should flow from leaders pursuing godliness. What do we mean by this? Look at verse 17. Paul writes, That is why I sent Timothy, my beloved and faithful child of the Lord, to remind you of my ways as I teach them everywhere in every church. What is why? Well, what he had said in verse 16. He said, what did he say in verse 16? I urge you then be imitators of me. That's what we looked at last time. That Paul calls those that he teaches to follow him as he follows Jesus. To want to grow into maturity. To want to be people that are learning to lay down their lives for God's sake and Christ's gospel's sake. And so he's calling people to follow him. And it's interesting here because Paul says, look, I, I'm sending Timothy. So we have a sense that maybe as Paul's writing this, Timothy's on his way to Corinth. So he says, I'm sending Timothy so that Timothy can remind you of what I already told you of not only this is what we need to believe, but this is how we need to behave. This is how the truth, the good news about God's love for us in Jesus doesn't just change the way we think, it changes the way we act. And this is something that both Paul and Timothy were consistent in, in both practicing and preaching. 
They, they were consistent in every church, everywhere, to say, this is what God calls us to. This is the kind of love that God has for us. This is the kind of love that God calls us to display, and it's for every church everywhere. This is important, too, because there are some people who look at the situation in 1 Corinthians 5 and say, oh, that only had to do with 1, with, with 1 Corinthians. That doesn't really apply to other churches. And yet Paul says, look, at, I'm sending Timothy to tell you what the standard is for every church everywhere. In fact, you can read any of Paul's 13 New Testament letters and you're going to see how much Paul cares about the people that he's writing to. How much he cares about that they believe the right thing and they learn to do the right thing. In fact, Paul's doing this very much as a a father would talk to his child. If you go back to chapter 4 and look at verse uh, verse. Uh, 15, Paul says specifically, for though I have countless guides, you have countless guides in Christ or teachers in Christ, you do not have many fathers. I became a father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He was the first one to tell them about Jesus, to lead them to faith in Jesus. But there was that fatherly love, that paternal, protective, corrective love that Paul had for his people. He had for God's people, I should say. So Paul and Timothy were consistent in this. But also, what Paul's going to call these guys to, he's going to call for, as he exemplified, the power of God for a changed life. Look, look at verse 18. In verse 18, we read this. So some are arrogant, as, uh, as though I were not coming to you, that's some in Corinth, but I will come to you soon, and if the Lord wills, I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Now, Paul's not saying, I don't really care about teaching here. Obviously, Paul's main ministry was teaching and preaching. What he's saying is, listen, these guys talk a good talk, or these guys talk about these deep, you know, heavy philosophical and theological ideas, but are they actually changing and becoming like Jesus? Is there, is there life, are their lives changing? And they're arrogant, oh, we can out-debate Paul. We, we can articulate truth better than Paul. We're not afraid if he comes, but actually they are afraid because they think I'm not coming. What what Paul's doing is he's saying, listen, I'm calling these guys to a changed life. These guys who think they're great teachers. These guys who are letting these kinds of things happen in the church of Corinth. I'm calling them to a changed life. Why? Because Paul expected, and again, you can read this in all the 13 letters that he wrote. Paul expected that all who profess faith in Jesus would want and would pursue a real life change that Jesus brings. That everyone should want this. This is really what should bring us to a place that we know we need Jesus in the first place. When we look at our lives, we get to a place, hopefully all of us have come to a place where we saw in our life something's not right. Something's got to give. Something's got to change. And I can't change myself. We know Jesus is the one that has to do it. And so we cry out to him. And we say, Jesus, save me. Well, this is what it means to, for him to save you. It's for him to change you, for him to change me. Paul's expecting this. But it's also important to see this, too. This is really, really important, that Paul's desire is to love God's people, not beat them. He says that explicitly, doesn't he, in verse 21. He says, For what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in the spirit of gentleness? 
Now, the, the rod, idea of a rod here could be a parent to a child, that kind of discipline, but also could be a teacher to a student, which uh, if any of you guys went to uh, Catholic school 30 years ago, you know what we're talking about. <laughs> you got on the knuckles with a ruler if you were misbehaved. And it was common in, in biblical times that when, when uh, a rich person would hire a, a, an intelligent slave to, or, or have an intelligent slave to teach his children, part of the teaching was applying the rod. But they only were to do that when it was absolutely necessary. And so Paul's saying, listen, I really don't want to do this. I really just want to love you. And see, this is the thing. If you remember, if you've been with us, or if you want to go back and listen to the sermons that we've done so far in 1 Corinthians, this has been Paul's heart, isn't it? Because we've already talked about at length about how gracious Paul is to the Corinthian church. Because there's some junk in this church that he's going to bring to the surface. Some serious junk. We just read a bit about that junk. But he's so gracious to them. In fact, if you turn over to verse or chapter 1 and remember how Paul spoke to them. Listen to this. Chapter 1, verses 4 to 6, where Paul says, I give, this is Paul being totally sincere about these people. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus so that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. Paul saying, man, I'm so thankful for God's work of grace in your life. I'm so thankful that you are learning to articulate all these deep truths of God. I thank God for what I see him doing. I'm convinced God is doing a good work in you, that he loves you, and he's committed to you. And it's because he feels that way, because he's assured of that truth, that he says to them, something's got to give. You see, Paul loves them enough not just to remind them of God's grace, but also loves them enough to ignore them, to warn, or to warn them about the consequence of ignoring that grace. Again, verse 14 of chapter 4, Paul says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed. I'm not trying to shame you. I'm not trying to put you on a guilt trip, but to admonish or warn you as my beloved children. This is what he's doing. You see, Paul's first step, and this is the first step of church discipline. And even though I know my first point here is that discipleship should flow from leaders pursuing godliness, Paul's first goal, his, his first, uh, his first, the first thing he was shooting for with these churches that he'd be writing to or speaking to <coughs> was not, hey, I'm coming in to bring church discipline. It was to teach the church to love each other enough, to know each other well enough to be able to give and receive correction. This is exactly what Jesus taught. L listen to this. Jesus says in, in, in Matthew chapter 18, we'll come back to this chapter several times today. Matthew chapter 18. I'm reading again from the New Living Translation. Jesus says, if, anyone, if any believer or if another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense if the other person listens and confesses it, you've won that person back. Can you, can you see Jesus' heart there? Listen, don't be gossiping about how someone's sinned against you. Don't, don't be talking about the junk they got involved in. Go to them and seek to win them back. Seek to get things right between you and them. Now again, when it comes to what Jesus is saying here, there are people that say, oh, this, this only applies, church discipline only applies if someone's sinned against someone else. But actually, we know biblically that's not true either. In other words, it's not limited here. 
to just when someone sins against you. It is there, but not just there. Paul would say this in, in Galatians chapter 6. Listen, he'd say, he would write, Dear brothers and sisters, if any believer is overcome by some sin, so that be against you, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path and be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. This is what we talk about when we mean discipleship or dis discipline, sorry, should flow from leaders pursuing godliness. As Paul wants to walk with Jesus and know Jesus and make Jesus known, he's calling everyone who hears him, who reads what he writes, to do the same thing. And that includes knowing people well enough and being known well enough so you can give and receive correction. Does this make you uncomfortable? because it should make you a little uncomfortable if you're taking it seriously. None of us want our junk to be known. None of us. None of us want to be exposed. There's a couple reasons for that. One, it's just our human pride. We want everyone to think we're great. I want you to think I'm great. It's ironic because a lot of times you guys think I'm great and I get frustrated because I'm like, no, you don't even know me. But it, it's our pride. We always want to be thought well of. But here's the other reason, and maybe the more important reason, we don't believe the gospel. We actually don't believe that we're as loved as God says we're loved. We actually don't believe that we're as secure in Christ as God says we are. Because if we believe that we're secure in Christ, that we are, as Paul says in Ephesians, seated with Christ in the heavenlies, if we, are, if we would believe that then we'd be able to receive correction because we know all correction is doing the same, live in that, from that position. If we believe that, we'd be willing and humble and gentle and wanting to do the same thing to other people. Now listen, I, I want to say right off the bat, this is easier taught and understood than it is to do. It's really hard to do, even starting here. But, but as I say this, okay, as I'm making you un, a little bit uncomfortable, as we're talking about this as a, a necessary starting point, can you kind of connect the dots and see that we're talking about, this is, this is why we do things like a 15-minute break in the middle of service? So you can't dine and dash. You can't come to church and then boom, gone before you know anybody. You're stuck. Now still, some people can come to servants for years and kind of hide in the corner, don't want anyone to know them, don't want to know anybody else. Now, let's be honest, it can be hard, socially can be, social situations can be hard for any of us. There's no doubt about that. But here's the reality. If we believe the gospel, that we're loved with an everlasting love, if we believe that we've been forgiven of our sins, if we believe that God has promised to finish the work that he started in us, and if we believe that God says that work is going to be done in within a local church context, then guess what? We should want to know and be known, even when that means we need to get corrected. This is hard, isn't it? How many of you guys were here and heard the One Another series that we did uh, a while back? How many of you guys heard the One Another series? Wow, a lot of you, how many guys did not hear the One Another series? That's probably a better way to ask. Wow, there's a lot of you who haven't heard it. So, it's not self-promotion, I promise you, but I really encourage you to go back to our website and listen to that series. 
about the one another commands in Scripture, about how, how the Scriptures sort of spell out for us what fellowship, what shared life looks like. Because this is the context, the biblical context for this idea of church discipline in a culture of discipleship. A culture of discipleship is a, a, a local church that is committed because of what Christ has done for us. We're committed to each other's maturity. We're committed to endure with each other, to bear with one another, to pray for one another, to serve one another, to give to one another. We're committed to that. Why? Because we know what we need more than anything is to be made like Jesus. So as we do that for others, we're made like Jesus. And as we receive that from others, we're made like Jesus. This is the context for church discipline. So it, 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 discipline should flow from leaders pursuing godliness. Maybe we sh I should have said it should flow from churches pursuing godliness. But Paul says, listen, I'm sending Timothy for this reason because there's an issue that we've got to deal with and I want to remind you guys of the standard of what it means to trust Jesus and follow Jesus that every church everywhere should walk in. But then he gets into the bit that we read earlier. This crazy heavy stuff. He mentions in verse 1 of chapter 5 a sexual immorality among you that, that's not even tolerated among pagans. Now, trying to put this in the 21st century context, can you even think of something that the, the worldly culture would say that kind of sex is off limits? There's not very much, is there? There has to be consent, it has to involve adults, and that's about it. Pretty much everything else kind of goes, doesn't it? Now, we're not going to talk about the nature of the, the sexual sin here in Corinth because when we get later on in chapter 6, Paul's going to unpack why sexual sin is such an issue for us as Christians to deal with and to have a distinct sort of value system about, okay? It's, and it's not about wagging our finger at the world at all. It's about being humbly, humble about what God says sex is, okay? So we'll talk about that in a week or two, all right? But what I want you to recognize, because what's happening in this context is that Paul's wanting these guys to see, listen, the way you disciple has to line up, or the way you discipline should line up, or should accord with the goodness of Jesus. How good is Jesus? He's this good. He never, ever rejoices in sin. Ever. Uh, what, what did Paul say? He says in verse 1, uh, in the first part of verse 2, or actually the first part of verse 2, he says, Are you guys arrogant? Are you puffed up, some version says. Ought you not rather to mourn? And the implication here is they find out about this dude who's having sex with his stepmom, which interesting, supposedly this is a, 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 one of the most Googled things when people are looking at pornography. It's not interesting in our day. And, and so, so he's, they're bringing this up and Paul's saying, look, even those who are heathens, even those who worship all kinds of gods, goddesses of sex won't do what you're doing. But the issue to Paul here is not just what they're doing, it's the fact that they're kind of glorying in this. We are so freed by grace that our idea of sex means, hey, whatever goes, goes. Do you realize there's whole cults built around this? There's a cult called the Children of God. I don't know if you guys ever heard of this cult. And it's a full-blown cult. It's still, it's still around, believe it or not. And the children of God, what they would do is, it was, a, it was a cult where really horrible stuff's going on. And one of the ways that they proselytized, they, they kind of evangelized, was they would send young women out to literally 
entice men through sex back into the cult. You want to have sex with us? Come back to our place. And they'd have sex with them and pull them into the cult through that kind of sexual activity. Crazy stuff. Corinth had things like that, similar to that in their pagan worship. And Paul's saying, what you guys are doing is worse, and what's really bad about it is you're proud of yourselves. You're proud of yourselves. See, see the, here's the reality. Discipline should, or discipleship, should look like the goodness of Jesus. That means we don't glory over sin, we grieve over it. We grieve over our sin. Now, just to be clear, has anybody here uh, considered themselves sinless? Anybody sinless here today? I just want to make sure that we're on the same page about that. All of us are still sinners in one sense, aren't we? As, even as Jesus followers, even as those who are believers have been born again by the Spirit of God, if you know what I mean by that, even we still fall short of the glory of God. But the issue is, do we glory in that? Ah, it doesn't really matter what I do. Or do we grieve over that? See, the issue is, as Jesus followers, we need to point one another back towards his better love, something better than the quote-unquote freedom that people in the world say. Again, Matthew 18, what does Jesus say? If any believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses, you have won that person back. But if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. Now, now the, the, the point here is, again, that if we see someone or we know someone, a brother and sister, who's involved in something that's clearly sin, not liking their movie choices is a different issue. That's a freedom issue. Not thinking they should go have a pint at a pub is a different issue. We don't want to condemn each other for freedom issues, okay? I'm talking about something that's clearly forbidden in Scripture, something that Jesus' followers are supposed to be different about, okay? If we see someone doing that, it should grieve us. Not make us angry. Definitely not make us puffed up. It should grieve us. And so we should want to, if we know them well enough and we love them well enough to say something, we should say something. If we don't, that's probably the first problem, isn't it? We should say something. And, and, and if they don't hear it, if they're like, whatever, dude, uh, you're not my judge. Uh, God knows. I can do this. It's no big deal. If they're like that, then guess what? You need to bring two or three other people. This is where it gets a bit tricky. Because if their sin isn't that obvious, what do you do? You wait and you pray until it becomes a bit more obvious. You continue to exhort that person as an individual. You love that person as an individual. Now, can I say this as well? Because Jesus says these things in rapid order. And so you can get a sense that this happens on a Sunday morning. <laughs> it doesn't. These things tend to happen over weeks and months and sometimes years. It's, it's difficult. It's not that clear. Because there has to be clarity. There has to be a, a sort of a, a gospel-motivated or grace-motivated patience with each other. Because we all fall short, don't we? We've got to give the Holy Spirit time to do the work He needs to do in their hearts. So we, we could exhort somebody, and they kind of blow us off. They don't want to hear it. They wrestle with it for weeks and weeks until finally they go, you know, I think you're right. I've got to be careful with this. I, I'm not really doing very well with this. Well, let's seek the Lord together, man. Let's, let's go to God and trust Him together for strength to, to walk away from that. That's what it should be, though. 
Now, we get to the second part, from the second part of, uh, of verse 2 all the way through verse 5, and Paul says some pretty heavy stuff here, right? Paul's saying, listen, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did, it, who did this such a thing. And Paul says, when you're assembled in the name of Jesus uh, and my spirit's present with the power of Lord Jesus, you should deliver this man to Satan. We'll talk about what he means by that, but understand this, okay? What Paul's making really clear is he's, he's kind of confirming two things. One, he's saying, listen, even if though I'm not there in Corinth with you, I still have an authority to tell you what's right and wrong. Paul still has that unique apostolic authority. But also, here's what he's saying. He's saying, my authority is simply a representation of Jesus' authority. I'm simply telling you what Jesus would tell you. It's not just my opinion. Interesting, we'll see this even in Corinthians, where Paul will sometimes say, in my opinion, you should do this. Other times he'll say, this is what God says you've got to do. He, he does make a distinction between those two things. And what Paul's saying here, in this situation, this is not just my opinion, this is the Lord's authority that says this has to stop. This kind of stuff can't be going on. Now, what does he mean, this whole deliver to Satan? That sounds scary, doesn't it? What does that mean? Well, here's the reality, okay? The Bible describes Satan and his legion of fallen angels as those who hold sway over the world. These demonic beings, they're influencers. I'm not saying influencers are all demonic, though some of them are, but I'm just saying demons influence people, okay? And, and so what happens is Paul's saying, listen, if you refuse the authority of Jesus and you refuse to walk in repentance then you're going to be eventually going to be put out of the church. And if you're put out of the church, you're then now vulnerable to that influence of the enemy. Now, I want to kind of take a rabbit trail here for a second. Please stay with me on this. If you don't make church a priority, you're making yourself vulnerable to the enemy. We need each other. If you go, oh, I listen online, that's good, but it's not good enough. Because church life isn't about just hearing information, it's about being God's people together. And what Paul's saying is, listen, this is what happens. When we, refuse to, when we refuse the power and authority of Jesus over our lives, what ends up happening is we make ourselves vulnerable to a demonic power. Uh, John says it this way plainly. He says, we know that we are children of God and that the world around us is under the control of the evil one. So if we are children of God, we, we say, okay, Lord, we want to, Father, we want to obey you by being with our brothers and sisters, by making those relationships a priority. What about this whole idea of actually what's happening, delivered to Satan, and, and also what, he says, what does he say here, the, the point of it, what's he trying to do? Deliver this man to Satan, in other words, the idea is, say he can't be in the church anymore, for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. Do you see the kind of parallels, the, the contrast, destruction, salvation, okay? Flesh, spirit. And what he's talking about here is when he says flesh, he means our old sinful nature. Every single one of us are born with a nature that's bent towards sin. We want to rule our own lives we want to make up our own truths. We want to do what we want to do. We're all bent that way. When we come to faith in Jesus, we're born again. And we get a new nature with new desires. And we begin to say, Lord, I want to be under your authority. I want to trust you for what's right. I want to look to you for, for my salvation, for my freedom. I want you to be my hope. Now, we get this new nature, but guess what? We still got the old one. 
And it's always trying to vie for our attention. And so what happens is, when we find ourselves getting kind of trapped, to use Paul's language from Galatians 6 that we read earlier, we find ourselves kind of overcome or trapped by any kind of sin or trespass. When we're in that place, we're stuck living by the flesh. And let me say this too. That can look like open, gross immorality, like we're reading here in 1 Corinthians, but it also can look very, very religious. We're stuck in legalism. You know what I mean by legalism? Legalism is when we try to relate to God by what we do or don't do. I can only relate to God by my works. That's legalism, and it's a false gospel. Licentiousness, big word, is when we give ourselves license to do whatever we want to do, no matter what God says about it. That's what's happening in Corinth. Now, now follow me with this. I probably should have made a graph for this one, but just try to follow me. Okay, listen. On one side of the spectrum, you have legalism. I can only relate to God by doing the right thing. If I do the right thing, God no longer calls me his child. I'm in a bad place. I'm not accepted. I'm not loved. This is what happens. I always got to do the right thing to make sure that God accepts me. That's legalism. You do that in the flesh, and it's not the gospel. On the same side of that spectrum is licentiousness. I do whatever I want to do. Hey, I, I can sleep around if I want. Hey, God loves me even though I'm sleeping with my boyfriend or my girlfriend or whatever. God loves me because guess what? I still go to church or I still read my Bible or I still whatever fill in the blank religious thing you want to do. Legalism and licentiousness are on the same side. They're the polar opposite of love. Because love is recognizing that we serve God who is love, God who defines love, God who loves us, and God who wants to make us loving. Are you following me? Legalism, licentiousness, love. So what what Paul's saying here is he's saying, listen, if this guy doesn't want to repent, you got to give him the boot. You got to say to him, brother, you got to go, man. If you don't want to repent, you're going to pollute what's happening with us. If you want to live in licentiousness or legalism, because those two things are connected, then you're not walking in love. And if you refuse to walk in love, then you can't actually be part of the fellowship. Am I making you nervous again? This is scary, isn't it? It's heavy stuff. But what does he say at the end of that verse 5? What does he say? That his spirit might be saved, his destruction of his flesh, so his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. In other words, we, 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 we remove people from the church so that they learn not to walk in the flesh. They learn not to be licentious, not to be legalistic, but they learn to say, I need the love of God so I can learn to love like God. That's why we do this. Now, again, Matthew chapter 18, just so you see, this is, again, what Jesus taught as well. Jesus says, if any believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense If the other person listens and confesses, you have won that person back. Always starts there. But if you're unsuccessful, take two or three others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confined by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Do you see the process here? We know and are known by people well enough to receive and give correction. We go to a brother and sister and say, man, this is not where God wants you to go. We endure with them. We pray with them. We're patient with them. 
But if that sin begins to spread, and we will see in just a minute that sin does spread, if that legalism or that licentiousness begins to spread and cause problems in God's people, we've got to probably bring someone else with us. By that time, it'll probably be obvious. And if they still don't hear our exhortations, we've got to go before the church. The idea here would probably be go before the elders and call them to say, look, we've got a situation on our hands. We're not really sure how we can help with this. Now, Servants Church has been in existence for, um, it'll be 19 years in December. Three times has church discipline got to this last level, just only three times. In all three of those times, the shortest it took to get that far was a year. In other words, we had a situation, I, I, can't, I, I can't talk about details, obviously, but we had a situation where one person was involved in something that just wasn't wise. We had compassion. We understood why the temptation was there. But we went and talked to that person. And we said, oh, brother, you know, you can't do this. And, and this was actually seen by many people. And it was really good because many people were seeing this and coming to me and saying, we've got to do something. I said, why have you talked to them about it? Oh, no, I could not do that. Oh, we actually, you have to. Matthew 18 says you're supposed to. And so we actually, I actually waited a couple months until someone had the guts to go talk to this person and say, brother, I, I could be guilty of the same thing, but i got to say, I see this has got to stop. And then we went to that person, and we took several months of just kind of, hey, how you doing with this? How's it going with the temptation? What kind of things are in, in place to, so you don't keep falling on this? We, we walk with them. And still, they kept going back to it. And so at a men's meeting, we, Paul Dean was there. He probably knows what I'm talking about. At a men's meeting, we said to him, brother, we're so glad you're with us. We love you, but this thing has to stop. And it was, a, it was not like a, a lynch mob. It was like humble. Men were crying. I could do the same thing. I've done the same thing. We just got to walk in repentance. And he says, okay, I repent. And so we prayed for him. We received him. We thought, praise God. But it continued to happen. And we had to say to him, brother, you're going to have to go. We hope you can come back. But when you come back, you have to repent. Because you got to see what you're doing here is living in your flesh, and it's going to affect our whole congregation. That process with this brother I'm talking about took almost two years. Why do I say this? I say this, guys, because this is normal Christianity. And some of you have come from churches where you've never seen church discipline. You've never seen anybody booted, or you've seen them booted before anybody had a chance to actually minister to them. Some of you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> There are people who go to the streets now that had that experience. They actually went to their leadership and said, we blew it, we need some accountability. And they said, get out. It's shocking, isn't it? But this is why. It always goes back to what Paul's wanting to do with the Corinthians, what God's wanting to do with every local church, which is teach us to be and develop into a culture of discipleship where we are so sure of God's love for us that we love each other, that we know each other, that we invest in each other, that we endure with each other, that this is what we do. This is why Paul can be so bold and to say, you got to get that brother out. See, he, he gets into verse 6, and in verse 6 to 8, Paul uses the Old Testament feast of Passover as a metaphor. How many of you guys know what I mean when I say the Passover? Just to make sure. Okay, so probably half of you guys aren't sure what I'm talking about. So remember when we went through Exodus? 
And when God's bringing the plagues uh, onto Egypt so he can free his people from slavery, you guys remember that? And so basically the last plague was what? God says, I'm going to, because Pharaoh could harden his heart and Pharaoh refused to let God's people go, wanted to keep them slaves. And so God says to Moses, go tell Pharaoh, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to send the, uh, an angel of judgment and the firstborn of every single household, both Jew and Egyptian, every single household, the firstborn is going to die. I want you to think about the house you live in right now. Who's the firstborn in your house? God's saying they would die. This is heavy. And so God says, but here's what I want you to do. Moses, tell people to pick a spotless lamb, a lamb without blemish, slay that lamb, and in, one of the things they needed to do was apply the blood of that lamb to the lentils of your door, of your home. And the angel of death will pass over your house and you'll live. Now, in preparation for this, of this night of judgment that they could be delivered from, in preparation for this, God says, tells his people, I want you to go through the house and I want you to rid your whole house of leaven or like yeast. It's really not exactly yeast, but it's more like a starter for sourdough loaf. It's kind of that kind of thing. But still, it's that idea. I want you to rid it. Why? Because it's kind of a picture of sin. That you're being delivered from slavery by the, sl the blood of the slain land, not be few, being delivered from death, and you're going to be sent out as freed slaves. So I want you to deal with sin. So what Paul's doing here in verses 6 to 8 is using this, this story, this Old Testament story, as a metaphor. Listen. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that, that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. In other words, your position in Christ is without sin. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, that is the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In other words, Paul's saying to this, these Gentiles in Corinth, he's saying, listen, don't you recognize in the same way that God delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt, God's delivered you from sin? And the celebration of that deliverance is get what? Is to get rid of your sins, to repent of it, which is a constant ongoing process for all of us. And so what Paul's saying here is, listen, this isn't about tolerating sin. This is about celebrating that we have a Savior. We have a Savior who doesn't just forgive our sin, but frees us from the power of sin, is teaching us to walk in that freedom. And we need to teach each other how to do this. It sounds kind of complicated, but it's actually pretty simple. In fact, uh, John, the Apostle John, I think explains it really well. Listen, this is 1 John chapter 5. Listen to how he explains this. He said, this is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you. God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. We are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth. But if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. 
But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we're calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. Can you see how what John is saying here about how we deal with sin in our midst is, is connected to what Paul's saying in, in 1 Corinthians? Can you see the connection? Can you see that, that simple, practical being willing to confess? James would go on to say in James chapter 5, confess your sins to one another. We don't need to go to a priest. We need to go to God. But we need sometimes to go with another brother or sister to God to say, I'm in this place. I need to confess this. I need some accountability. And I want to get that fresh forgiveness and cleansing again from you, God. Why? Because this is how we enjoy fellowship with God and one another. This is how we celebrate our good God. Are you guys following me? It, 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 seriously, is this, is this making sense? Are you understanding maybe what God would have you do with this stuff? Because this is really important. It's really important to ignore a heavy text like this or to use it to beat the sheep with. But this is not what Paul's doing. Paul's wanting to see this person that he's saying has got to get kicked out restored. I got good news. In 2 Corinthians, there's an indication this guy got fully restored. And the Corinthian church was kind of like, yeah, but that guy was really bad. Should we let him back in? And Paul's saying, forgive him. Don't give the enemy a foothold here. Forgive that guy and bring him back into full fellowship. Because Jesus' desire, Paul's desire, and our desire should be the same. We want to see people restored. We want to see people enjoying Jesus. We want to enjoy Jesus together with his people. Amen? Not very enthusiastic. So discipline needs to accord with the goodness of Jesus. But also, this kind of discipline, it should be us recognizing our distinct identity. If you're here today and you're already a born-again believer in Jesus, you have a new identity in Christ. And it is, does make you distinct from the world, from those who don't know Jesus. It doesn't make you better. It makes you distinct. Hear what I'm saying here. Look at verse 9, what Paul says. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter. This is the letter that we don't have, so we don't actually have a copy of what he wrote here before. But obviously, Paul wrote another letter before to the Corinthians. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with, the sec with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or idolaters, since then you'd have to go, then you would need to go out of the world. In other words, what Paul's saying here is this. He's saying, okay, I'm not saying, you know, don't have anything to do with anybody that's in sin. Because if that was the case, you would be all alone and then realize, actually, I'm just as guilty as everybody else. In fact, there's an indication here that what Paul's saying is this. Listen, he's saying, he's saying that, listen, you should be associating with people who aren't yet Christians, no matter what their junk is. There's that indication here. That we shouldn't be those that are so separated from people who aren't Christians that we, that we just don't know how to relate to them. That should not be the case. If you are always uncomfortable around un-Christians, you, you really need to seek the Lord about that. You, you, and that's not, there's no condemnation in this. I know some of you guys grew up in the church. All your friends have always been Christians. I, I, I can't say I get that because I didn't grow up in the church. But I, I, I can imagine how that, that would be tough. If your whole social network has always been Christians. 
you would probably find it hard to relate to someone who's not a Christian. I was a complete heathen, so I got no problems hanging out with heathens. But, but the, we have to be those that are comfortable with unbelievers, not because we're worldly like them, but because we know the Lord wants them to know Him. In other words, listen, when we know God's love, that love should motivate us to seek the best for others in those relationships. That the people that we know that aren't believers, rather than going, oh, they're going to pollute me, they're going to pollute me, I've got to stay away, I've got to stay away. We should be moving towards them, believing that the Lord loves them and is able to save them as much as he's able to save us. Also, God's patience should motivate us to think long-term about these relationships. Sometimes we're not very patient. Sometimes we're so eager to be used of God, we think, okay, I met my neighbor, uh, we had a good conversation, I invited him to dinner, and I put a, a Bible tract underneath their plate. And I'm saying, make sure you take that with you. And they're going, great. That's the last time they ever want to have dinner with you. Now, it, the Holy Spirit could lead you to do that, so I'm not saying that's always wrong. I'm just saying, think long term. How can I know this person, walk with this person? How can I demonstrate a sincere and authentic love for God because I'm sure of God's love for me? How can that be demonstrated to this person? How can, this, how can the testimony of God loving me come out in our conversation? Guys, we should trust God's wisdom enough to show us how to recognize in these relationships when we're actually helping them or they're dragging us down. So when I first got saved in 1987 as an 18-year-old, I had to stop going to parties because I didn't have the self-control when I was there. I knew if I went to a party and said, I'm not going to drink, I probably would drink it. If I had one drink, I'd have two, I'd have three, I'd have four, I'd have five, I'd have six, and then I'd hit on some girl, and that would just be the end of my witness. I knew that was what would happen. So I had to stay away. But I did get to a certain point where I felt mature enough and strong enough that I, I knew, okay, there are certain situations where I can and should be with unbelievers. And i got to say, I'm at a place now where I'm so confident in God's commitment to me and the fact that everybody who's, who's, who's lost can be found. I'm not saying will be found, but can be found. I'm so sure of that that I'm comfortable hanging out and getting to know unbelievers, having conversations with unbelievers. I'm comfortable with it. I'm not threatened by it. I'm not saying because I'm better. I'm just saying we need to learn to relate to the world without being worldly. Is this a good goal to pursue? Put this on the list above, must uh, lose uh, 20 stone, you know, before next year. Put this above the list, must learn to, to love people who don't know Jesus yet without becoming like them. Must trust God's spirit to teach me how to do this. Put that on your list. See, again, listen, this is what Jesus says in, in Matthew chapter 11. This really, this idea of wanting to relate to the world without being worldly is what Jesus did perfectly. Listen to what he says to his critics when he did this. He says, for John the Baptist didn't spend time eating and drinking, and you say he was possessed by a demon. Because, of course, John the Baptist told off religious leaders, didn't he? The son of man, Jesus said, talking about himself, on the other hand, feasts and drinks, and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But Jesus says wisdom is shown to be right by its results. In other words, when those relationships turn into people going, I, 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 I respect this guy's faith so much that I will go to church with them. Or I respect the way this guy parents 
or the way this guy treats his spouse or the way this guy or gal, being generic here. I respect this person, the way they work and their integrity, and I will listen when they tell me their story. And I want, listen, I'm going to rephrase this. God wants us to be the kind of place that is encouraging each other towards that kind of maturity and the kind of place where people come in and see, man, these guys love each other. They're radically different. You wouldn't guess that they would be friends outside of church, but they're not just friends. They know each other, they're known by each other, and they love each other because that's the apologetic for the gospel. That's the evidence for the gospel. Listen, our distinct identity should be, we should be the kind of people that we can relate to the world without being worldly. If Jesus can do it, by his Holy Spirit, he can teach us how to do it. But also here, look, look at verse 11. When we talk about recognizing our distinct identity, it means that we need to learn to judge ourselves, that is, we correct each other, without becoming the judge. Uh, look what Paul says in verse 11. I'm almost done. Paul says, but now I'm writing to you and not to, not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an adulterer, reviler, drunkard, swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Now, when you see that word guilty, put next to, if you want to write in your Bible, write next to it, unrepentant, because that's the issue. Again, we will talk about the, the sort of these... The, the nature of sexual sin uh, in the next week or two, and we will talk about these different kinds of sins that Paul lists. There's another one we'll read in just a few verses in chapter 6. We'll talk about the details of these things. But the issue of these things is not that we've ever been guilty of these things, because all of us have been guilty of most of these things. The issue is, are we repenting of these things? Jesus' followers are not yet sinless, but they are constantly repentant. Are you following me? We don't discipline for sin. We discipline for unrepentance. We don't correct people because they've blown it. We correct people because they refuse to repent where they've blown it. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Do you see the difference? You see, some, you see a parent here, and you'll see a lot of parents here. We've got a lot of kids. You see a parent here lose their patience with their child. You don't say, that's not Jesus. You should repent, brother. You give them space. You have some compassion. You pray for them. You wait and see what happens. Nine times out of ten, they're going to go, kaboot there. And guess what you get to say there? God's gracious, man. The Lord forgives. It's okay. He's still working on you, like he's working on me. Don't need to correct. Just need to encourage, because they've already repented. Do you see what I'm saying? No, no, no. Look what he says in verse 11. He says, now I'm writing to you, don't do this. He says, not even to eat to with such a one. Now, this is interesting. Because the reality is, listen, we're not loving people if we allow them to think they can identify as Jesus' followers, yet follow their own desires. You can't serve self and serve Jesus. I'm going to say it again. You can't serve self and serve Jesus. And so when we act like, it's cool, do whatever you want, you got this, whatever you feel is right, do it, we are actually lying to them. We're actually telling them a false gospel. So when we tell people, hey, bro, that's not, or hey, sister, that's not what, what Jesus has for us. If we're going to follow him, we, we can't be involved in that. 
thing or we, we got to start moving towards this thing. And they go, hey, back off. I can do what I want. That person needs correction. Do you understand what I'm saying? And guess what? All of us are going to be in that place where we need that kind of correction. I need you to say to me when I get it wrong, especially if you watch and you go, John keeps doing the same thing over and over. Many of you guys know we live with the Mussons. And don't worry, I'm using Mussons up, not you. <laughs> and uh, Josh and I have loads of conversations about loads of different things. And I can be really honest and say, man, this so frustrates me when this happens. Man, I just, and I'll vent to Josh about a frustration with whatever situation it might be. Josh is really gracious to listen. He's also really wise to occasionally say to me, that sounds kind of like just pride right there. And I don't go, what? Call me prideful? Let's throw down. <laughs> no, I, I, I just usually swallow hard and go, yeah, you're right. It's pride. I need to repent of that. We need those kinds of relationships. And we don't need to live with each other to have those kinds of relationships. Paul says this in 2 Thessalonians, listen, he says, take note of those who refuse to obey what we say in this letter. In other words, the authority is not our opinion, it's God's word. Stay away from them so that they will be ashamed. Not, don't, don't think of them as enemies, but warn them as you would a brother or a sister. In other words, when it comes to church discipline, we don't do what our JW friends do, which is like kick them out and then you get shunned and they never talk to you again. That is not discipline. Even when someone gets disfellowshipped, we still pursue them as people. We still love them as people. We still talk to them. We still exhort them as brothers and sisters as long as they're professing faith. But we say, listen, we can't actually have real fellowship. We can't take communion together. We can't be in fellowship at a church together unless you're willing to kind of deal with us. Love you, miss you, but this is what, what God would call us to. Lastly, he says in verse 12 and 13, for what have I to do with outsiders, Paul says? Is it not the inside? Is it not those inside the church whom we are to judge? God judges those outside. Then he quotes Deuteronomy 17, purge the evil person from among you. Uh, I want you to listen to this because here's what we don't do. Here's what we often do as Western Christians. We curse the world. Society's going to hell. LGBT's going crazy out there. We can't trust any of these corporations. All that might be true. But that's not our place to judge. That's God. God will judge that. I'm not saying that we shouldn't, shouldn't declare something to be wrong when it's wrong. I'm just saying our place is not to correct the world. Our place is to correct ourselves. You following me? We got enough of our own junk. We point to the stuff that we see. We see the corporate greed and it grieves us. And we see politicians in bed with these corporate greedy people and go, it's so wrong, but we never think twice about giving anything that we make to somebody else. We're just as greedy. We act disgusted by what we see within the LGBT agenda. But when no one's looking, we look at pornography. We get enough of our own junk. Paul's saying, what are you judging the outside for? Judge yourselves. Deal with your own junk. Now, wrapping this up. God 
loves us enough to discipline us, to correct us. He's committed to us that way. Are we committed to each other this way? Are we willing to know people and to be known by people because we so believe that we're so loved by God? That we actually have been given this beautiful identity in Christ, that we're seated with him in the heavenlies, that we can know that we are God's children. Our identity is sons and daughters by faith in Jesus. Are we so confident of that that we're willing to be open about our junk so we can have our junk dealt with? Are we so sure of that that we want to grow and learn to love that way and so we're willing to do to have those uncomfortable conversations when people are in a bad place? God's committed to love us this way. Are we committed to love each other this way? Father, I pray that you would help us to be committed this way. And I pray for anyone here who doesn't yet know you, Lord. I pray they would know that you so love the world. You sent Jesus as that Passover lamb. That his blood would be shed so that death would not appeal, would not take us. Lord, that, that his, his death on the cross is in place of ours. And his resurrection guarantees ours. And that we can actually walk in a right relationship with you because of him. Father, help us to believe this. And help us to believe this enough to help one another do this. For we pray it in Jesus' name. And everyone who agrees says, Amen. Amen. Bless you guys. If anybody had any questions about this, because I recognize that this is heavy stuff and you've had different church experiences, I'm going to just sit over there. And uh, if you have any questions about what we talked about, please come and talk to, uh, talk, talk to me. If you need prayer for anything, just because you're feeling heavy about what's going down today, some of the leaders will sit over there. Some of the elders and the elders' wives will sit over there and, and they'll be available for you if you want prayer for something. Or just grab a brother and sister from you and say, would you pray for me? All right? But home groups this week, make sure you get to one if you can. Thanks, guys, for enduring a really long Bible study. Bless you guys. We'll see you soon.